If you got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 32 tonight. I'm going to be honest, like I was, uh, so th- there's another church in, in Blount County that's preaching through Ephesians right now also. And I was talking to that pastor this week and he said, so what verses are you doing? And I said, 17 through 32. And he was like, are you kidding me? Like that's like four sermons in there and you're doing it all at once. And I was like, yeah, man, we're, we're trying to be done by Reformation Day. So, so we're, we're just moving, we're moving through it a little quicker than we, than we might normally. There's a lot of content in this one, but honestly, a little bit of this stuff we've talked about recently. Last year, we, we looked at verses 17 through 24, and so I'm still going to review those because I don't want to just, if you weren't here then or whatever, I don't want to just skip over them, but, but, um, but I'll try to move through them maybe just a little bit quicker um, this evening. So, um, if, again, if you get your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and um, let me um, read our, our, our passage, and then I'll pray for us. So starting in verse 17, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father God, we again thank you for this time, and we ask uh, for your special blessing um, as we sit here tonight, God, um, we ask that you would draw our attentions to your word, uh, that you would draw our attention to um, the things that you are showing us and the things that you are teaching us in your word tonight, that, that the Holy Spirit would shine light in our, in our understanding, in our intellect, um, in our hearts, so that we could see and receive these things rightly, that we would know ourselves rightly, that we would know you um, better, and that in all these things we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, God, help us to that end. Um, we ask this of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so identity, right? Identity is a big theme in the scriptures, right? And it's a big theme in our culture right now as you look around. So we, you know, we talk about all the different things. We talk about identity politics. We talk about gender identity. We talk about racial identity and all these things. Um, identity is a big deal, 
right now. And so our right to define our own identity, you could probably argue, is what is at the center of that, of the secular, post-Christian kind of worldview that um, situation that we find ourselves in, right? This idea that I can say and believe anything about myself, and that is my prerogative and my right to do that and believe these things. But the scriptures aren't silent on these issues, right? And, and at the end of the day, they consistently remind us that there is only one who is ultimately um, has the power and the authority to define our existence, right? To give us our identity, and that is God. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we have entered into a new reality, right? And that new reality comes with it a new identity in Christ, okay? Christ defines us in every way. And the reality is is that now we have to live out that new identity. We have to live out that new calling. That's exactly what he's getting at at the beginning of this passage. We saw it last week. We see it again here, and we're actually going to, he's going to hit on this language multiple times as we go throughout Ephesians. He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, right? Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that you have been saved by. Um, he uses that language not only here, um, but in the fa- that passages that we're going to be looking at. And he, and he juxtaposes it with something. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Don't walk, right? You must no longer walk, in verse 17, as the Gentiles do. Okay, so Paul is using Gentiles there, and we've talked about this already too. He's sort of using it as a, um, as a generic word to include all of those who are outside of Christ, right? Again, technically that word means non-Jewish person or, or something like that, but, but he's using it to mean those who are not part of God's family. And so Paul's gonna give us this picture in, in, at the beginning here, um, of the old identity. He's going to tell us what it looks like to be in that old identity and what we should be walking away from. Um, and then he's going to give us a picture of the new identity, right? The new identity that is already a reality in our lives, but now has to be lived out. So again, in verse 17, he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Okay. So that, what does that mean? That idea of futility in their minds. He's saying those who are without Christ are walking around out here in the world, um, in, in a useless way, right? There's a futility. There is effort and there is energy expended. There is belief and there's all these different things that a normal human life has. And yet at the end of the day, all of those things are futile, right? They are leading to nothing, right? They have no purpose. They're not going anywhere. That is what the, the, the life apart from Christ is marked by. And so this passage gives us some critical insights into the way that mind, that human heart, um, thinks and looks and, and understands things. Paul's already done this a little bit in chapter 2, if you remember, right? So we talked about in chapter 2 how Paul describes the situation that the lost find themselves in. Okay, here we're kind of looking at the internal workings of of a person without Christ. But there we're looking at um, their situation. So if if you want to flip back there or look over real quick in chapter two, verse one, he says, remember, you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh 
carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, right? That's the situation of the lost, okay? All those things that are said there. We are living by our passions. Um, we, are, we are children of wrath. Um, we are influenced by the world and by Satan and by sin and self and all these things. That's the situation we're in. Well, now he gives us sort of what's going on in the heart, okay? And so look at a couple insights that we see starting in verse 18. So first off, it says this. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay? So they are darkened in their understanding. Their ability to perceive things rightly... Is, is similar to the way you would walk around in a dark room, right? You, you, you can't see, you don't know where you're going, you bump into things, um, there is a, there's a disconnect there, right? Their understanding is like that. It's like they're walking around in a, in a dark room. Um, you don't see things rightly when your understanding is darkened. And notice there's a sequence of events that is super key here, okay? There's a sequence of clauses that tell us the reason for that. Tell us the reason for that darkened understanding, okay? And there's three clauses up front. Alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. Okay, so let's kind of talk about each one. Alienated, right? Distant from, not close to, right? Um, you, you can't hear him. You can't hear God. You can't engage with him rightly. Why? Well, then the next thing tells us. Ignorance. Ignorance means lack of knowledge. There's almost a passive quality to it, right? Uh, you just don't know what you don't know, okay? And so they are, these people are ignorant of God. They really don't, they don't understand, but they don't know uh, about God in the first place. Um, it's not the same as stupidity, right? It's not the same as foolishness, even. It's the absence of something. They, don't, they just don't have that thing. But then here's the key. Where does that ignorance come from? Well, it says to us that the ignorance comes from, it is due to, their hardness of heart. All right? So what does that mean, that hardness of heart, right? So that means you're incapable of being moved, right? You are unfeeling. Um, you, you have a heart that cannot be affected by things on the outside, right? Here's what we need to understand. Hardness of heart is a moral stance, okay? Because oftentimes people want to get this whole equation backwards. They say, well, I didn't know, and therefore I didn't believe. But it's actually the other way around. This passage shows us that there is a sequence here, right? You start with the hardness of heart, Okay? And that leads you to ignorance. And that ignorance leads to alienation. Okay? And we actually find out further down, it leads to something else past the alienation. In that alienation, what happens? Not verse 19, they become callous. Okay? So callous is the same source, uh, root word that like callous is on your hand, right? Something that is this hard, impenetrable thing that stuff can't get to. It's the same idea, but that word callous is talking about a cruel disregard for something, right? You don't care um, about this thing anymore. You are callous towards God. Um, and, then, and then that callousness then leads to something else. Giving yourself over to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity, okay? And so sensuality is all about this idea. Typically, it's associated with sexual issues or whatever, but it doesn't have to be, right? It's basically saying what is real, what is right, what is important is what makes me feel 
something, right? Feel good, feel high, feel pleasure, whatever. So it could be food, drink, sex, drugs, adrenaline, power, fame, um, anything, right, to feel something, right? We give our lives over to those things, okay? So, again, this is attested to multiple places in Scripture. Romans chapter 1 basically has the same breakdown. It says this is the problem of, of fallen man. We have hard hearts that will not turn to God, will not accept God. That leads to us being ignorant about God, which leads to us being alienated from God, which leads to us being callous towards God, which leads to us giving our lives over to sensuality and impurity. Okay, That's where Christless man sits. Okay, That's the situation they're in, right? So in... in Paul's description of the lost in 2.1.3 and 4.18 and 19. Man, we have this pretty dark and heavy picture there, right? Um, it is not paint um, the, the, uh, the picture of lost mankind in, in bright tones, right? Um, sometimes you'll come across somebody and, and who is living apart from God, and there's almost like a, a, a bragging about it, like a, you know, a, a it's kind of cavalier nature or whatever, and, you know, they make kind of, man, I'm going to bust hell wide open when I get there and stuff. You know, it's going to be one big party, and I'm going to be running it, you know. And this kind of attitude, and it's like, no, that's not, that's not the picture that the Bible gives of, of your life apart from Christ, right? It's not um, just this one big party. There is darkness and judgment um, and separation from God. But then here's what's awesome, verse 20. Everything is different now, though. For the follower of Jesus Christ. Christ has changed us. Our new life and our new identity is, is all tied together, right? And again, it's not a principle that we are turning to. It is Jesus Christ that we are turning to, right? The thing that changes us is a person. Not just believing a doctrine or an idea or a philosophy or something. And you notice Paul's emphasis on that in verse 20 because watch this. He shows us how Jesus is in Every bit of this process that is important in verse 20 and 21. So watch this. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Okay. Now here's the deal. You, you don't notice it if you just read in the English. Okay. But when you look back at the Greek, some things pop out um, to you in the Greek. Okay. So here's the first thing. That phrase when he says, that is not the way you learned Christ. There is no other place in all of Greek literature that we are aware of that words something like that. It would make sense if it said you learned about Christ, you learned of Christ, but that is not the way the Greek is written. The Greek says you learned Christ. Okay? Now, what is that, what is that maybe pointing to? Okay? I think it's at least saying this. It's saying Jesus is the content. Okay, but more so than just data, right? He's not just information. You didn't learn about Jesus. You learned Jesus, right? Um, there's maybe an illustration there with your, your spouse or something like that, right? Like, I don't just know facts about Christy, right? I know Christy, right? She's my wife. Like, uh, we live together and we've shared all these different things together, right? I don't know about Christy. I know Christy, at least as much as, 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 as a person can know another person, okay? That's what this is getting at. He says, you didn't learn about Christ. You learned Christ. Christ is the content, okay? But then watch this. It says, assuming that you have heard about him, and then here's another interesting thing too. It's not actually what the Greek says. The Greek doesn't says it doesn't say uh, uh, you heard about him. The Greek says you heard him. 
Okay. Now, the reason why they throw the about in there is because they're scared that you're going to get confused that what he means is only those who physically heard the audible voice of God or something like that. Those who heard, if you said you had to heard Christ, then you're going to think, yeah, like I was there, right? That's not what he means. And so they add that about in there to kind of clarify that. But it doesn't say about in the original Greek. It just says you heard him. Okay. So what does that mean? Not only is Christ the content, but guess who the teacher is? Jesus is the teacher, right? Jesus is the one teaching you. He is the subject matter, and he is the teacher of the subject matter. But then there's one more level to it past that. You were taught in him, right? Jesus is the context in which you learn these things in. All right? So he is the school, you could say. Jesus is the subject matter. He is the teacher. He is the school, right? He is the content. He is the instructor. He is the context. Jesus is what this thing is all about, okay? And I know that maybe you go, yeah, I know, Ash, this is a church. We, uh, we got that part, right? Man, it's easy to forget. It's easy to start feeling like what this is all about is, is a certain level of doctrines and a certain level of teachings and a certain level of behaviors and things like that. It's not. It's about knowing Jesus, hearing from Jesus, living your life in the context of Jesus. That's what it's all about. And so he says this new identity you have is in Jesus, in all the ways it could be in, in Jesus, right? Content, context, subject matter, all right, or teacher. So then this is what now Paul shifts gears and he says, so cool, so what are we supposed to do? If this is a reality, if we have a new identity in Christ, what are we supposed to do in light of this? And so he tells us in verse 22, he says three things, you put off, you renew, and then you put on. So 22, you put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt and is corrupt through deceitful desires, right? The Christian life is about a fundamental breaking with the past. It has to be, all right? If you think that you can become a Christian and then say, cool, I got this get-out-of-hell-free card, I'm going to have a little bit, you know, easier life now, but I'll just keep on getting to do some of the fun little vices and things like that that I've always um, enjoyed before then, you can't, right? You have to put off that old life. The illustration is taking clothes off, right? You are wearing these old man clothes, and you take those off and, and discard them. Um, I, I've always wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail, Right? It's probably never going to happen. But it would be really cool, I think, to do that. Right? It takes like six months to do or whatever. But I have been told by people that, that you find something interesting when you get on the Appalachian Trail. So about, you know, I don't know how far in, 10 miles in, 15 miles in, all of a sudden you'll start noticing that there is gear discarded on the trail. Right? And I've heard people say this about other, like, major climbs and stuff like Denali or, or Everest or stuff like that. But you get about a few miles in, and all of a sudden you start finding gear on the trail, right? People have thrown off like some kind of cool gadget or they've chucked this piece of equipment and it's like fancy expensive stuff and it's just discarded there, okay? And this is the reason why because what happens is people when they're at the start of the trail go, oh yeah, I bought this cool gadget and it's going to help me out so much. And then you get on the trail and quickly you realize what's really important on, on a hiking trail is your weight, Right? Nothing else matters, right? What's your, your load is what's your, what's important. And so pretty soon into this trail, people start going, this is only going to slow me down. It's really cool. It's really expensive. I look really awesome carrying it, but it's only going to slow me down. And even though I paid a lot of money for it, I got six months of hiking to do. And so you know what they do? 
they ditch it, right? Um, so if you're, if you're looking for some good gear, you could just like hike 10 miles in and like collect it all and then take it home or whatever, I guess. But the Christian life is like that, okay? Like there's all these things that when you become a believer, you get a little bit and you're sort of like, no, I think I can handle all this, right? I can keep these, these pet vices or whatever they are, these, these attitudes. I can keep all this stuff because I can handle it, right? This will be fine. It won't hinder me. I can have both of these things. But you get a little ways into the track, you get a little way down the path, and you start realizing these things are only going to hold me back. These things are only going to hinder me. And so you know what the best thing to do? The best thing is just to cast them off. Yeah, but what about the things you're giving up? You know, those, those, those vices, they, that you really enjoy them, and they cost you a lot, and you, and you want them. Um, they're, they're fun, and you enjoy them. Yeah, but they're just going to slow me down, so I'm going to get rid of them. That's what the Christian life is like. Okay, we have to take off the old self and and let it go. Okay, but we don't just take off the old self. Something has to replace that. Right. And so then Paul tells us in 23, we renew, we are renewed in the spirit of our mind. Right. Our our, our thinking and our ways of understanding things and what we find important. We renew our thinking and we put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know the saying, clothes make the man? You ever heard that saying, right? Clothes make the man? So um, I I looked it up because I didn't know where that had come from. Apparently it goes all the way back to the Greeks. Um, Shakespeare used a version of it. Um, It's been something that has been said pretty much for the last two to 3,000 years of Western culture, right? Clothes make the man. And, and there's, there's some truth to that, right? It's, 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 a, it's a proverb about first impressions. It's a proverb about how we carry ourselves and stuff like that. There's some wisdom there, right? There's some vanity there, too, um, certainly, that people use it in, in, in a wrong way or whatever. But if we take that proverb and, and apply it to the Christian faith, man, there is some, there's some spiritual insight there, right? To say, um, for the believer, the clothes make the man. Okay, because the clothes that you now have is you are wearing Jesus Christ, right? You have put off the old man and you have put on Jesus Christ. And so now um, you are literally, you know, it's like at the, like the red carpet or whatever. What are you wearing? Vera Wang? I'm wearing Jesus. Um, like I have, I'm covered with Jesus to the extent that when God looks at me, he sees Jesus, right? And so Paul is saying, walk in a manner worthy of that, right? If I'm wearing, again, it sounds weird this way. If I'm wearing a Jesus costume, it would be really weird for me to go out and, like, punch a dude in the street, right? Like, or, like, you know, steal something from somebody. He says, if you are going to wear this Jesus, then you should walk in keeping with that, right? You should live a life that looks like this thing that you are wearing, all right? So we, we put on Christ, and we live in light of that of that. Um, that new image that we have, literally an image, right? We're, 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 we, are, we are bearing the image of Jesus. But notice the language here, too, and this is another cool thing, right, that you, that you lose in the English as opposed to the Greek. Um, we, we put on this new, um, we put off this, this, this old clothes, we put on this new clothes. Both of those, the tense of those verbs is, is the completed tense, Okay? Which is kind of weird because it's almost like he's telling us to do these things and yet he's saying, he's saying it in a way that means it's already done. You've already taken off the old man and you've already put on the new man. And then right in the middle though, that renewing your, your uh, spirit, the spirit of your mind part, strangely, that's not in the completed tense. That's in the continuing action tense. Okay? And you go, 
that seems weird at first linguistically, but it actually makes perfect sense, right? Because what is it pointing us to? Man, there are these realities out there. You are a new person. You have been changed. There is a new reality and a new identity that defines you. That has happened. It is completed in a sense. There's no taking it back. Jesus has changed you. And then at the same time, man, every day you've got to renew your mind. Right, Every day you have to realign your life with Jesus Christ. It doesn't take away from any. We call that the already not yet. Right? It's already happened, and yet at the same time it's not fully complete, and we have to continue to work at it. Those things are both going on at the same time. And so while the lost person's mind is just continually characterized by darkness, our minds are being renewed every single day. Our minds are being realigned with Jesus Christ. No longer characterized by the ignorance that leads to callousness, that leads to sensuality, right? But the renewal of the image of our creator. And notice how the language changed right in the middle of it too. Paul's using this illustration of taking off things and putting on things. But then all of a sudden he says, but you were created in the image of... How, how does that... i, I got to look back at it now. You were... Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, right? And so there's this, it, there's this looking backwards all the way to Eden, right? How are we created? We were created in the image of God. And then we lost that, or at least it was defiled, it was marred by the fall. Except now what has happened? Now we're, we're putting on Christ. We're getting rid of the old man. We're renewing our mind. And that image, that likeness is being renewed, Right? We are becoming the people who we were always intended to be again. The whole thing is coming full circle now. So that's what Paul calls us to do. And there's some practical stuff in here, right? Paul basically, because that sounds kind of spiritual and nebulous, right? I mean, I could come up here, and you may feel that way right now. You may be going, as you're putting on Christ and taking off the old man and renewing your mind, like what does all that mean in like concrete action, concrete behavior and stuff? And Paul says, I'll tell you what it means. And I'm going to give you some specifics as to how they apply to especially our community. Because he's been talking about community, right? Just the last verse. Talking about unity, talking about community. So he says this, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Okay? Honesty is the cornerstone of any community, right? It's the cornerstone of really any relationship. It's the cornerstone of marriages. It's the cornerstone of friendships. It's the cornerstone of, of a church congregation, right? Um, a lot of people have recognized this. You can deal with a lot of things. Ugly, hard, negative dark things if everybody's honest and on the same page, right? Um, and you can think about that in terms of all kinds of different stuff, addiction and, and various patterns of sin in our life. Like It's like if we're all on the same page and we can say, hey, this is where I'm at and this is how things are, then we can work through these things. But when people start lying, when people start being dishonest, when people won't own up to things, then all of a sudden the whole thing collapses, right? That honesty is necessary. That speaking the truth to those around us is a necessary requirement, okay? That is not what the world is characterized by, right? The world is not characterized by thinking in those terms necessarily, right? They are trying to define their own identity regardless of what is actually real, regardless of what is actually true, right? Pretending and facades and deceiving people. Paul says we can't have that in the church anymore, 
right? That is one of those things you need to drop 10 miles into the track, okay? Putting on a fake something, you, you got to let that go, okay? 26, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil, right? So again, another thing you need to ditch, another practical reality of putting off the old man and putting on the new is unresolved anger, right? We can't hold on to anger. The, the, the passage is not telling you to be angry. It sounds like it is. Be angry and do not sin. It's saying anger's coming, right? You're going to get angry. That's how humanity works, right? We, just, we get angry sometimes. Sometimes it's justified. Sometimes it's not, okay? But when you get angry, you need to do something, right? You need to resolve that anger because if you don't, and that's why he says, don't let the sun go down on it, okay? That's a picture of saying, if something happens today, you need to get it dealt with. Because if you don't, what's going to happen? You give the devil a foothold. You give the devil an opportunity, right? He finds a place where he can get a hold in your life. And then he starts doing whatever there. Maybe um, he starts letting that anger fester and turn into a grudge and turn into bitterness and turn into resentment and all these things, right? And he, and he starts that process. And the reality is, is you gave it to him, right? Instead of dealing with the anger up front and rightly, you allowed the devil to get a foothold, okay? So that's why, guess what? Matthew 18, church discipline, except the beginning of that is not church discipline. It's interpersonal dealings, right? The Bible says when somebody sins against you, Take that sin to your brother and, and tell him about it, right? Um, present them with it. If somebody does something to you that is, has angered you and hurt you and was sinful uh, against you, then, then deal with it. Go talk to that person. Say, hey, listen, this thing happened and, and that wasn't cool, right? And then we know you go through the process. If they say, I don't care what you say, I'm going to live my life, then you say, cool. I'm going to go get some Christian friends, and we're going to come back to you and talk to you about it again later. And then if that doesn't work, then you say, cool, I'm going to get the whole church, and we're all going to talk about it. And if that doesn't work, then we're going to treat you like you're an unbeliever. Because obviously you're not concerned with repenting of sin and turning back to uh, God and asking forgiveness of your sins, right? And so that's what we do. But that's a picture of dealing with anger immediately and rightly. 3, 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Again, central to community, right? We are all working together for the good of the community. We talked about that last week in the context of using our gifts in the church, right? The thief is no longer to steal. We steal from people in all kinds of different ways, right? Like immediately we might think, you know, I don't like just walk into people's like sheds and like take their lawnmower. What is, what is he getting at, right? We steal from people in all kinds of ways. We steal when we're lazy. We steal from people when we treat them as a mean to our ends. We steal from people when we don't take seriously what the word says we owe that person. We steal when we treat the church, like it's a dispensary to meet our needs, not a place to use our gifts to serve other people, right? We can steal from people in all kinds of different ways. And so what's Paul's remedy for all those things? The practical deal is just this, work, right? Get busy, get work, get to work. Don't shirk these things, get to work. Work out there, definitely, right? Wage earning work, but work in here too, right? Serving and doing something, using your gifts to benefit um, the community. And notice this. This is one of these things that I love, right, that is just like a little tweak in our understanding. He doesn't say, go out there and work so that 
you can provide for your own needs. He doesn't say, go out there and work so you're not a burden to other people, right? Even though we would both, we would all say, yeah, those are real things and important. That's not the, the, the motivation he gives. What's the motivation? He says, go out there and work so that you can have something to share with those who, who are in need, right? Go out there and work so that you can be a contributing person in this com- community, that your gifts can be used to meet somebody else's needs. That's what's missing, right? It's not just about your pride. It's not just about your um, upkeep, right? It's about you helping other people. So go out there and get to work and use your gifts in some way. And then finally, verse 29, he says uh, sort of a fourth practical thing. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Right? I'm guilty of this. Um, I know you're guilty of this. We have a culture that is guilty of this. Man, we don't speak in edifying ways. Like, that's not what's on the forefront of your mind. You ever met somebody who's just an encourager? Right. I met this gentleman at Starbucks the other day and like I think it was because he saw my Bible or whatever. And he was like, oh, that guy's a that guy's a brother, you know, so I'm going to talk to this dude. He had a Christian T-shirt on and stuff. And man, just like everything that he said, like he just made eye contact, started talking to me, just super friendly. Everything he said was super encouraging. Like he was saying these things out of nowhere that I was like, oh, that's that's really nice. I mean, it's a nice thing to say. Like you're he, like I'm just trying to ignore you and read my book or whatever. Right. Um, some people are just encouragers. Right. But here's the deal. I think we're all supposed to be that way. Instead, we have everything from profanity to blasphemy to gossip to sarcasm. Um, right? We don't speak in ways that build up. We and it's and it's everywhere. Right? It's in our comedy. It's in our politics. It's in our entertainment. It's in our friendships. Even right? Like uh, there's a, the, the normal way of dealing with our friends is like to give them a hard time and stuff. And again, I'm not saying. We should all be Ned Flanders either, right? I'm not saying that we just are always like, hey, diddly doe, friend. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's like that, okay? But I think we all should tone it down. Um, me first of all, okay? Um, we should tone the, the sarcasm and just the, because listen, the way he says it, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. Okay, even neutral language is not what we're aiming for. Right. We're not just aiming for neutral. We're aiming for building up as fits the occasion. Right. Don't be a weirdo. Maybe that's what it means Um, that it may give grace to those who hear. Right. Building people up, giving grace. Um, That's not the way people talk. It's not the way most of us talk, okay? And so I'll just leave that there. Sometimes it may be malicious. Sometimes it's just lazy and pestering. I don't know. But that's not the way we talk. And so Paul says, but guess what? It has to be, right? This is a thing that you got to drop. This is an old thing that you got to take off. I know everybody speaks in sarcasm now, but you got to drop it because it's only going to hinder you. It's going to slow you down on this walk, okay? So either drop it or know that it is going to be a hindrance um, this whole, for the rest of your walk. And, I, and this is maybe the, the kicker of all this, because I think he's sort of using it as a summary statement, not as a fifth point. Verse 30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Right? What does that mean? The opposite of all those things, stealing, speaking harshly. Right? All those things, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit is saddened, by your life. 
It is looking to you and saying, man, I have done so much work. Christ has done so much to save you, and yet this is what we are seeing. And again, not a what is the feeling that comes from the Holy Spirit? It's grieved by that, right? It's not looking at you going, man, I wish I hadn't even saved that. That's not the attitude. The Holy Spirit is saddened to see the way we live our lives when we refuse to drop this junk. And so then kind of a closing summary statement that honestly we could dig into and, and, and get a lot out of, but we're just going to kind of run by. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be what? Put it away, man. Ditch it. Take that. If you're carrying that pack that's got, is full of anger, just ditch it. I know you love it. I know it makes you feel justified and, and, and self-righteous or whatever. And just get rid of it. Just drop it and leave it by the wayside, along with all malice, right? And instead, put on, pick up. What do we do? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay? And so that's this first practical thing that he's going to give us as we look, as we go further in his passage. He's going to get deeper and deeper, right? We're going to talk about work. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about family. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare. We're going to talk about all these different ways that the Holy Spirit is working in us that we are supposed to walk worthily of, right? But this is the beginning. He says, folks, your life, your identity has to be different. It is different. And so we have to start living like that. Okay? So let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask God to work that very thing in our lives as we walk together in community. Father God, help us. God, these words keep on coming back over and over again in your, in your scriptures. Walk worthily. Do not walk the way the Gentiles walk. Walk in a way that is worthy of the calling uh, to which you were called, God. Help us to do that. God, help us to walk in such a way that, God, we are not only honoring the gospel that has saved us, but that we are displaying that gospel to the world through the church, that the world is looking on and saying there is something different in those people. Um, there is something different about the way they live in community together, the way they treat each other, the way they speak to each other, the way that they um, share and sacrifice and serve each other. God, let your gospel be seen as glorious through our lives in this place. Uh, Father, we ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, who came to earth to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for many. We ask these things in his name. Amen.